Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hey, clever friends. If you'll be in New York City this month for Design Week, I want you to come to the Emerging Designer Showcase. It's at the Javits Center during ICFF on the main stage, Sunday, May 19th at 4 p.m. Think of it kind of like lightning round mini critiques plus professional speed dating all rolled into one. And it's genuinely entertaining. Here's how it works. On stage, five rising design talents will each present their work to a group of illustrious industry professionals for real talk advice and critical feedback. And for better or worse, this all happens in front of a live audience. We've hand-selected a phenomenal group of designers for this year's show, and we have a star-studded lineup of very discerning industry pros who will be up there with them. The Emerging Designer Showcase is presented with media partners Clever, that's us, and Design Milk, and with support from American Standard and Lumens. Again, that's Sunday, May 19th at 4 p.m. at ICFF at the Javits Center. You can register to attend for free at icff.com with our special promo code D-A-P-M-C-L-E-V-E-R. See you there. I'm at my first year-end review and a professor says your work gives me a feeling of joy. I really wanted to understand the why. Maybe if I'd been in design a long time, that might have seemed like a really natural and nice compliment. But to me, it was a really weird thing to say. Hi, everyone. I'm Jamie Derringer. I'm Amy Devers, and this is Clever. And today we're talking to designer and author Ingrid Fatale-Lee. Ingrid's pioneering work revolves around the link between our surroundings and our mental health. She founded her website, The Aesthetics of Joy, to shed light on this connection between design and our emotions and well-being, and recently released a book, Joyful, The Surprising Power of Ordinary Things to Create Extraordinary Happiness. A former design director at IDEO, she has a master's in industrial design from Pratt Institute and a bachelor's in creative writing from Princeton. You can watch her popular TED Talk, Where Joy Hides and How to Find It, but first, let's hear from Ingrid. I'm Ingrid Fatale-Lee. I'm a designer and author based in Brooklyn, New York, and I study joy, and in particular, the way that our surroundings can help us create more joy and well-being in our daily lives. I love that so much, and we're really excited to talk about all your work on joy, but we here at Clever, we always like to get the origin story for context. So can we start at the very beginning? Can you tell us about your 
childhood and what your hometown was like and your family dynamic? Sure. So I actually have two hometowns. Um, My parents split when I was really little. So I was two when they separated. And so I don't really remember a time when I didn't have two homes that I went between. So I grew up in two uh, little towns about 15 minutes apart, uh, north of New York City. My childhood was... I think it was really defined by that. It was really defined by having these two very, very different experiences where I would go back and forth um, one week and one week back and forth. I think like that experience of being in multiple worlds at once was really formative for me. The way that I'll put it is this. I didn't really know any other way Um, that it could be. And so this sort of experience of going back and forth was just the rhythm of my life. Both of my parents were doctors. And so I got really comfortable with a lot of um, science talk at the dinner table. And that was something I became used to from a really early age. But I also had some really powerful mentors and people who were in my world from a very early age who I think, shaped the way that I look at the world. So I had my grandparents, um, my mother's parents, who were really there for a lot of my childhood. And my grandmother was just this incredibly creative person who, um, who always was sort of up for whatever project I wanted to take on. So um, sometimes we would you know, try out quilting. She would teach me how to quilt. Um, she taught me how to use a sewing machine. She taught me how to paint. Um, I used to spend a month with my grandparents every summer in their um, retirement community in Palm Beach, Florida. And it was to me, like the best thing that you could do. I know lots of kids probably wanted to be with other kids, but for me, like a month with my grandparents in their apartment, uh, getting to do craft projects was just heaven. Um, that sounds kind of awesome. It was Plus, pretty old awesome. people are so wise and they've got so much time. <laughs> exactly. And, uh, you know, my grandmother would make me pancakes every morning. And I think when you have two like busy single parents, like that's not the kind of thing that you get every day. Mm -hmm. And so it was really a a very special time. And then I also had this neighbor across the street growing up um, named Jean George. Um, She's a a children's book author, and she's written some pretty amazing books. Her parents were naturalists, and she became a naturalist. And so all of her books are really accurate descriptions of the natural world. And they don't talk down to kids, and they don't pander or anything, but they're just really beautiful descriptions of the natural world. And and one of her most famous is um, called My Side of the Mountain. And it's about a kid who runs away to live in the woods. And he lives in in a hollowed out old tree. And it's just this vivid fantasy uh, that probably every kid has had of, you know, wanting to run away at at a moment in time. And, you know, she was someone who, because she lived across the street, I would just show up at her doorstep with all kinds of things that I found in my neighborhood and bring them to her. And she would, you know, explain what they were, or if it was an injured animal, she would help me figure out how to save it. And I think of those two women a lot, um, Jean and my grandmother, because they're both grandmotherly figures um, who really awakened my connection to the world around me. Wow. And I'm guessing I mean, we need to talk about what brought you joy as a child and what captured your imagination, but it sounds like it was 
the relationships with these two women and the relationships with the world around you that that were awakened through them your crafting and nature interests is would you say that's accurate yeah i was just a really curious kid and i was really lucky that my parents and these other figures in my life really encouraged that curiosity and sort of let me follow it wherever it led and um i spent a lot of time i have memories of spending a lot of time alone actually just like puttering around the neighborhood and picking flowers and, you know, climbing trees. And I mean, I did have a best friend who lived in the neighborhood and we would, you know, <laughs> we would, you know, spend summer days in the pool and, and biking around the neighborhood and, and that sort of thing. But I did have a lot of time, you know, that I spent reading and writing really terrible poetry and, you know, drawing things. And I, I feel like I was kind of a dabbler. Like I was always just trying different things. I feel like unstructured time is really important in childhood and adulthood, and it's really hard to schedule it in. But unstructured time is definitely when I let my mind wander and when I stumble upon new and fascinating things, and then I pull at threads that I'm curious about, and that's that's exciting. I wish we had more unstructured time. Yeah, I really feel like that was the hidden gift of having, you know, my parents be separated and divorced and having to go back and forth is that it turned out to leave me a lot of unstructured time. And I became really good at being comfortable with that because I think a lot of people are not comfortable with that. Um, and right. feel like if they have that time, they suddenly need to, you know, occupy themselves with something structured to me, you know, an, an empty day with some reading material and a blank notebook is a really great day. I mean, having divorced parents and two hometowns, you've found the gift in it, obviously. It's sometimes really hard to see those gifts in adolescence when your body's freaking out and you're going through like insane growing pains and hormones are jumping all over the place. I wonder if you have any stories from your teenage years that illustrate some of the specific growing pains that you had to go through to get to where you are now. Things got a little more complicated for me pretty much at the beginning of my teenage years because my mother became ill. When my mother got ill, she was sort of in and out of hospitals a lot. And, you know, my grandparents were coming up off and on and things were probably much less stable than even they, they had been, you know, before mm -hmm. there was sort of a rhythm to things. And writing became a really important way of coping for me. My mother eventually got better. She actually, you know, retrained. She was a dermatologist. She retrained in natural medicine, acupuncture, and homeopathy because I think of the way that she felt that the medical system had served her. She felt like she wanted to add all these other tools to her tool set that Western medicine maybe hadn't been acknowledging. And so that's how she sort of move forward from that. But I think watching mm -hmm. her resilience through that also sort of set a model of that for me. And I think my resilience through that was really in writing and being able to process, you know, my very complicated feelings about what was going on with her illness. Um, and also being a teenager and just sort of being let loose in a way that is probably, you know, I think for most teenagers, you have parents who are holding you in and reining you in and, you know, you're 
stretching your boundaries, I actually had a lot less of that, um, mm-hmm. at least there. I had much more normal experience the other half the time when I was at my dad's house. And so, yeah, for me, it was really a time of trying to understand boundaries and, and trying to understand my own independence in a context that was not stable. And I think now, you know, I, anytime I encounter something that is destabilizing, I think I have muscles that have been built from that. Some of them are helpful and some of them are not necessarily helpful, but, um, but that, <laughs> right. Some are know. muscles, some are compensations and it's like, yes, ah! <laughs> yes, yes. But I think that when you have an experience like that very young, you do become aware of your own resilience in a way that maybe you don't, if you don't have that till later. So at that point in time, it sounds like you were continuing to explore your creativity. You said you were dabbling in things. I'm really interested to know why you settled on going to college for English and creative writing. It sounds like you said you wrote some bad poetry. So can you um, kind of walk us through how you got to that decision? I think I got my first journal. It was before sixth grade. I must have been in fifth grade or or earlier. And I actually have them all somewhere in a box. Every journal I've ever kept. I I threw every single journal out from grade school and high school, and I regret it every single day. So I'm so glad that you saved them. Yeah, I can't tell you that I've looked at them in a while. I mean, it's pretty hard to look back at those, especially because, you know, there were some really intense things for a kid to be dealing with during that time period. But I just had such a visceral response. I was like, no, don't make me look at my old journals. Right. I can't. I right. can't. It's yeah. hard. I have done it at different times, but I haven't looked in a while. And I remember very consciously as a kid being like, I want to save these so that when I have a kid, I will be able to understand what it was like to be this age. Because the mentality is so, everything is so acute. And you feel things, I mean, you talked about like your body's going crazy, all these things, like you feel things so intensely. Mm -hmm. And I wanted to be able to, it's weird that like, you know, 13 year old me really wanted 30, 40 something year old me to be able to empathize with her kid. But Maybe it's because I felt like the adults in my life didn't always understand. My dad did a pretty good job, um, understand the intensity of my feelings. I was a journal writer from a very young age. I actually don't do it so much anymore, but periodically I return to it. Writing became something that I enjoyed and was good at early on and was rewarded for certainly in school. Um, And I loved it. I felt I just Mm -hmm. loved words. I studied Latin, and I just loved words and languages. Writing was just a natural thing for me to do. And then I also was really interested in high school, I was really interested in biology. And so I thought that I would go to college, and I I I didn't know know what I was going to major in. I thought maybe philosophy for a while. I mean, I was sort of just, again, trying all sorts of things. But I ended up coming back to writing. And Mm -hmm. I started taking creative writing classes at Princeton. And I really appreciated the opportunity to be able to, you know, write a novel for my undergraduate thesis. You know, I put it in a drawer, um, never published it. But it was a really great experience to be able to do that. That was a a through line um, from my childhood straight into college. And though I wasn't sure I was going to end up there, that's what I ended up choosing. So as you were there, what was your interest in in market research and branding? It kind of seems like, you know, doing creative writing might 
lend itself to understanding the life cycle of something like a novel where there is research, there is a look and feel for the book, but market research is, you know, much more on the business side of that. So how did you get into that? Right. So I finished writing this novel and then I thought, oh my God, I don't want to do that again for a really long time. (laughs) (laughs) So I finished that and I was like, okay, I need to do something that's the opposite. That's like more on the quantitative side of my brain. Oh, there's the science coming in. Yeah. So I was like, okay, Mm -hmm. I need to do something that balances this out because I know I don't want to be a writer now, but maybe in the future I'll want to be a writer. But right now I need to go do something else. I got into market research, you know, I I just sort of fell into it, but I, I was intrigued by this particular job, which was testing all the magazine covers that would go um, out onto the newsstands to sort of make recommendations and figure out which ones would sell better. I've been a magazine junkie since a very early age. My mother used to get, because she was a dermatologist, they would send her free magazines, supposedly Mm. for her waiting room. And they didn't realize that a sticky fingered um, child was basically (laughs) grabbing all of them. And like, I would bring them to my room and I would just sit there pouring over them page by page by page. I mean, even up until recently, I was not able to like flip through a magazine. I would read it every single page because of how I used to do it as a kid. And so I was obsessed with magazines. So it was a really fun idea for a job that I would just look at the covers and use market research techniques, quantitative market research techniques to help them decide which cover line should go on there and, you know, which photo to use and and things like that. So that was, that was the, my first job. And what I later realized is that- Were these Mar- fashion magazines or yeah, were they like Vogue, science? Like, Vogue, okay. like in, if you've ever seen the September issue and there's a moment yes. in the September issue where Anna Winter goes, and where's the cover test? And um, that was what I did. I did the cover test for Vogue um, to try to tell them which image to use and things like that. So Whoa. Yeah. So so that was my it's first- kind of cool though. It was really cool. It was really cool. It was really fast paced. And, you know, we'd get the covers like one day and then the report had to be sometimes delivered by like the afternoon of the next day. So we'd be like coding a survey, putting it into the field, like interpreting it, writing a report and doing all of that before, you know, 3 p.m. So you, you just ha- it was just sort of, sort of a crazy first job, but it was really fun. And you've been devouring magazines since you were a kid. And now you get to sort of tinker with the machine that makes them. That must have been really interesting to you. It was really interesting. It, I felt like I at that point, I, I wished I worked at a magazine or I wish, you know, I, I sort of wanted like after a while of doing this, I wanted to be even more involved. And I think what I realized was that after that first job, it became a movement back toward the creative world. So I, I was interested in branding because it felt like there I would really be using my verbal creative muscles to tell stories about brands and and what they were and where they were from. And actually I realized once I got there, once I got to Landor where I, where I worked um, my second job, I realized that the way that I approached branding was through narrative. And I used to write these little character sketches about the brands that I would be working on because that was my way of understanding what a brand could be. Um, so I would write it just like it were a person and I would write about that person's life and you know where they lived and what their family was like and all of what they wore. And that was my way of, of understanding what then the design should be. Yeah, that's so fascinating. And that makes... Perfect sense 
I mean, from this angle, from hearing you explain it, in order to understand the motivations and how they interface with the world. I think it's all motivation. You know, that's the, mm -hmm. the essence of creative writing. If I learned nothing else from that experience, it's that your characters' motivations need to make sense. Even though you're making these people up, if their motivations don't make sense, then the book won't be believable and no one will really want to invest in it. So mm. the motivations have to make sense. And I think the same is true for a brand. If the motivation doesn't feel right, then you don't trust it. Feels inauthentic. Yeah. And all the actions have to connect, both with a brand and a character. The actions have to connect to the motivation. And if there's a disconnect between that, then we wonder what's up. Where does industrial design fit into all of this? Okay, great. So, <laughs> so I didn't know that design was a thing when I was a kid. I didn't even know that it existed. When I think about what I wanted to be when I grew up, I wanted to be an inventor. Mm -hmm. Like that I thought would be really fun. But then I, I was like, I don't even know how you go about being an inventor. And no one really suggested a path. Right, because it's not a major in school. It's not like, yeah, we have teachers, nurses, firemen, and we even have inventors as childhood characters, but nobody connects that to the path in school. Right. So then I just other things came in. And I'm lucky that there are a lot of things that interest me. So I did those, you know, I did writing and I love that. And I often tell people, you know, when they ask about their first job, I'm like, just get something that's going to give you exposure to some other things that you might be interested in, because you might not find the thing that you're really passionate about until you're a few levels deep. And so it wasn't until I was in that branding job where I was working alongside designers all day and I was really excited about what they were doing and I kept sort of peering over at their computers because what they were doing seemed more fun than what I was doing and that's really how I became aware of design and then I started to try to understand you know what field of design would be right for me I, I knew that I didn't want to be an architect and I was really interested in having a sort of flexible design sensibility that would help me make whatever idea came into my mind. Like if I wanted to make a chair, I wanted to, I would have the skills to be able to make that. If I wanted to be able to make a device, I would have the skills to be able to make that. So to me, it sort of seemed a little like the Swiss army knife of design. And I was attracted to that. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. 
Clever is supported by Tools and Weapons, the podcast hosted by Microsoft Vice Chair and President Brad Smith. A recent episode took Brad to Venice, where he connected with Eve Ubelman, a partner whose company, Econem, has developed a game-changing technique for creating digital architectural models so comprehensive they've been dubbed twins. During the relative quiet of the pandemic, Eve and his team used drone-captured photography and powerful AI to create a full-scale digital twin of Venice, a city threatened by climate change and over-tourism. On Tools and Weapons, Eve tells Brad how he's using this incredible technology to help preserve some of the world's most endangered cultural heritage sites in pristine detail so they can be studied and appreciated for generations to come. To stay current on some of the most innovative people working with AI today, follow or subscribe to Tools and Weapons with Brad Smith wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, Clever listeners, we're getting excited for New York Design Week in May. This year will be better than ever. ICFF, North America's leading platform for contemporary design, will take place from May 19th to the 21st at the Javits Center in New York City. I'll be there, and I'm excited to let you know how Clever is collaborating with ICFF for Launchpad at Wanted, formerly known as Wanted Design Manhattan, and the Emerging Designer Showcase. Launchpad is an international platform for emerging designers that introduces new concepts and showcases prototypes of furniture, home accessories, and lighting. It is the best place for manufacturers to meet new designers, discover fresh ideas, and potential products to develop. The best of Launchpad winners will be selected by a jury of renowned industry professionals, led by yours truly. And they will go on to be featured in another edition of the popular Emerging Designers Showcase. I'll be leading the Emerging Designers Showcase live on the talk's main stage, where the five Launchpad finalists will have a chance to present their projects to our esteemed panel of professionals. It's always a really good time. So mark your calendars for Sunday, May 19th at 4 p.m. Both Launchpad and the Emerging Designer Showcase are presented with media partners Clever, that's us, and Design Milk, and with support from American Standard and Lumens. Visit icff.com to learn more and register to attend. Those are the letters icff.com. Come by and say hi. I would love to see you there. Support for Clever comes from Wix Studio. Instead of reading you another, let's be honest, boring ad script, Wix Studio just sent me this wild-looking Alice in Wonderland-themed website to scroll through and tell you about. So, whoa. This is not the web I'm used to. There's something called Mouse Parallax, which makes it feel like you can go deeper into the screen. And as I scroll down, it's like I'm falling down the rabbit hole. And things are moving in depth and perspective. Even my cursor has morphed into a glowing little orb. There are all these no-code animations that make this place feel organic and alive. And Alice is wearing some pretty cool shoes, by the way. Okay, I know I'm mixing up my narratives now, but we are definitely not in Kansas anymore. Your turn to go down the rabbit hole. Build your next web project on Wix Studio, the platform for agencies and enterprises. So you ended up studying industrial design at Pratt and 
that kind of helped plant the seed for your current work, which is on joy. So can you talk a little bit about your experience at Pratt and then how you discovered your passion for joy? Pratt was like starting from square one in a lot of ways. Mm -hmm. I thought I had worked hard, studied hard in the past, and I got to Pratt. It felt like I was at the bottom of a whole new hill with things that I didn't even know I needed to learn. I had to learn all about color. I had to learn all about drawing. I had to learn how to draw. I had to learn about form and the way that you create it. And Pratt is thankfully really old school in the way that they approach this. And so you spend a lot of time with your hands in clay and um, working with wire and working with plaster to really get your hands in form. Um, You don't do a lot of 3D CAD modeling until you're in your second year. So you spend the whole first year feeling things out. And I felt like a fresh start in a lot of ways. And it was scary. It was really scary. And I worked sometimes, you know, it felt like all nighter after all nighter after all nighter, Mm -hmm. (laughs) Um, just to catch up because I didn't have any of the skills that a lot of my peers had from having undergraduate art degrees or undergraduate design degrees. So there was a huge learning curve for me. But I think that that maybe being a little bit of an outsider helped me see it with different eyes. And so when a professor, you know, I'm at my first year end review and a professor says your work gives me a feeling of joy, I really wanted to understand the why. I feel like, Mm -hmm. you know, if I'd just been maybe if I'd been in design a long time, that might have seemed like a really natural and nice compliment. But to me, it was a really weird thing to say. (laughs) Because one, I was a little afraid that maybe it was dismissive. And, And of course, what I wanted to understand at Pratt, I was really interested in sustainability. And so I really wanted to understand how to create sustainable design. So I was really looking at manufacturing methods. And I was trying to factor that into the designs I was presenting. Um, And there was no interest in that. That wasn't what people were responding to and what I'd created. Maybe there was interest, but it wasn't what they were responding to. They were responding instead to the form um, and what I had without really thinking about it, because I wasn't thinking a lot about form. I was just sort of, I didn't know enough at that stage to really think about it intentionally. Yet that's what they were responding to. And it was weird to me because I think so much of my life I'd been taught that material things weren't important, that even though, you know, we might enjoy them, they don't have a really important influence on us. And so the idea that things could create joy Mm -hmm. was it attention. And so I asked, you know, this panel of professors to explain it and they couldn't do it. And I think that's a, a lot of times how design school can be. It's very, it's a very intuitive process and a very intuitive practice and not as much attention is paid to the science that explains, you know, why we feel the way we do about design. And Mm. that felt like a real gap to me because I wanted to understand exactly why. If you're telling me that this creates joy, I want to understand, well, first of all, what, what does that mean to feel joy? How does this thing exactly stimulate that and what is it about that thing so that we can repeat it I wanted to know all of that and so that's really what started me off down the the path that became my my current work 
So once you were done school, you ended up working at IDEO. Can you talk a little bit about that experience and then we can get full on into the joy? <laughs> yeah, so I worked on this work on joy for my master's thesis at Pratt. And then the same day I presented it, I was offered a job at IDEO. And it was my dream job ever since I first heard of IDEO. And mm -hmm. so I was definitely, even though I was really curious to continue with my work on joy, I wasn't going to say no. So I spent six years at IDEO, um, starting out as a design researcher and eventually working as design director in the New York office. And I think, again, it's really connected. This field of design research is really connected to this question of motivation. Um, why do people do what they do? Um, in relation to the design that's around them. And of course, that used to be a very physical question, um, a question of ergonomics and the way that we people held things and interacted with things physically. But now it also, of course, includes questions of emotion and, and why do we feel the way we do about the things that surround us? And then also lots of intangible things. So why do we interact with services in a certain way? And how do we interact with digital um, tools in our lives? And how do we design things that are going to help people do what they want to do, achieve their goals and their dreams in life? Yeah, as you were working at IDEO, do you feel like your six years there, you were able to answer any of those questions or get some more insight into why people connect with objects and what is creating joy in the world around us? What I experienced at IDEO was the chance to really dig deep into people's lives and into their homes and get to observe them in a way that most of the time we don't get to see because we're really focused on the people who are in our own midst and our own bubbles. And so to be able to talk to people about you know, losing their homes during the housing crisis and what that was like, um, or on the verge of losing their homes, or getting to see people just watching people shop, actually, like getting to go shopping with them and seeing what it's like when they go shopping. I think you do get to see what attracts people, um, what they're hoping for what sort of unfulfilled needs they have. So yeah, I do feel like I got to see that um, across a really broad cross section of people. That must have been so fascinating. It is. I miss that sometimes. In the work that I do now, I don't spend as much time really delving deep into specific individuals' stories and lives. Um, and it is something that is really special and it's eye-opening. I mean, when I would work on projects at IDEO, I was constantly transforming my life at the same time as I was working because you would learn things. And one of the things that is a really important part of the research practice at IDEO is talking to um, what they call extreme users. So people who have some sort of very specific behaviors that you can learn from. So for example, going shopping with extreme couponers um, mm -hmm. or, uh, you know, talking to people who have like 35 credit cards so they can get travel points or <laughs> all kinds of people who have really specific things that they do that are maybe a little bit uh, to the extreme. And so you learn a lot about that. And so, you know, one month I'd be making over my, my exercise regimen and then another I'd be making over my 
financial situation because of what I'd be learning from, you know, watching people in these very extreme situations. That is interesting because I think in general, our brains are kind of trained to average people out. So to spend so much time like getting into the weeds with the extreme individuals must have really opened up the edges of what you thought people were doing in the world. Yeah. And I think the theory behind it is that what extreme users display is generally a need that lots of people have that the average person probably has, but hasn't figured out a way to fulfill or Ah. doesn't express to that degree. So by looking at what extreme users are doing, you can get an idea of what everyone might want or need, but don't have a way to say it yet. That makes a lot of sense. And you're making over your life continually as you're working there, uh, but you have a need to continue your work on joy. And for our listeners, you founded and run a website called The Aesthetics of Joy, which is devoted to a simple, powerful idea that our greatest source of joy is the world around us. Bravo to that. You've given a very popular TED Talk where where joy hides and how to find it. And you've recently released a book, Joyful, The Surprising Power of Ordinary Things to Create Extraordinary Happiness. So we want to know about the mission that you're on, its power, the contribution you hope it makes to the world, but also at some point you had to make over your life to focus on this work. And was there a story there from leaving IDEO to to commit yourself to this work on joy? Well, I started the blog in 2009 before I joined IDEO. And so I was working on it alongside my work at IDEO. And that was really helpful because it became this thread in my life that always kept me attuned to joy. And when you when you study joy for a living, it's a really wonderful thing because people just send you things that bring them joy all the time. Um, <laughs> so I've, I've gotten the joy of having that for the past 10 years of having people just send me these things. And the work that I was doing on the side was a couple things. One, I was really trying to understand what joy is. And I think one of the big things that I learned is that joy is different from happiness. So happiness being something that we measure over time and is more reflective. Um, It sort of takes into account lots of different variables that are at play in our lives, whether that's our relationships and connections, the work that we do, the hobbies that we have, all of those things, how much, how happy, how satisfied we are with those goes into Mm -hmm. how happy we are. But joy is much simpler and it's, Uh, much more momentary and transient. So joy is really about moments. If happiness is something that happens over time, joy is about little moments. And from a design perspective, that seemed much more accessible. And of course, this is, you know, around this time, there are all those national happiness quotient, or I can't remember, but these like countries starting to try to measure happiness and really starting to take happiness seriously as something to achieve in a society. Mm -hmm. So that's starting to happen. But as a designer, I'm thinking happiness is really hard, whereas joy is actually much simpler um, because it's also something that we can measure physiologically. It's something that is indicated, uh, you know, when someone smiles, when someone laughs, um, there are certain feelings um, that go with it. Often people talk about a feeling of warmth or lightness, a feeling of a radiating feeling, and there are physiological changes that accompany that little spike in positive emotion. And so I think understanding that 
it made it, you know, when I think about what the the broader quest is and that, you know, that I was sort of aiming towards, it was really to understand that connection um, between, you know, that feeling, that little feeling and how do we design for it. And so running the blog all those years gave me an opportunity to constantly sort of research this topic and post new things that I was discovering and then also post things I was finding that um, seemed to spark joy. And so I was able to really unfold a lot of my thoughts on it over the years and also gather things. So I think there was a period of time where I started to feel really frustrated um, because I'd try to work on the book or the proposal for the book on the weekends. And then I wouldn't get anywhere because I was, you know, I was also working a full-time job and, and I started to get frustrated. And a friend said to me, she said, I think this book will be better for all of the time that it's taken because you'll just keep gathering things. And that's really what Uh, happened. I I sort of used to describe it as it was like a bird building a nest. You know, I see one little shiny thing over there and then I would get this really interesting study that would explain this question that I had and I would file that. And I just started gathering things. I had this massive Evernote library where I just saved every study, everything that was coming my way over the years. And the catalyst that really got me to write the book and actually like sit down and do it that led to me leaving IDEO to do it was someone hearing about the idea and offering an introduction to an agent um, who then read it. And I, you know, I think it's funny because I had kept, whenever people would offer an introduction to an agent, I would say, no, 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 I'm not ready. (laughs) And Mm -hmm. I did that so many times. And finally I said, what do I have to lose? I should just try it. And when I actually finally shared a proposal with this, the agent who became my agent, um, Richard Pine, he looked at it and was like, oh, you're like 90% done. <laughs> and it's just so oh, funny that's how, encouraging. Yeah, very yeah. encouraging, but I had protected it and worked on it for <laughs> so long. And just, I think if you have something on the side for so long that your dreams of what it can be can almost be intimidating. They can almost hold you back from achieving it because now you've dreamed about it for so long that nothing you create in real life is ever going to measure up to your dream of what this book is going to be. Yeah. Yeah. And I should clarify, he meant that the book proposal was 90% done, not that the book was 90% done. So, ah, uh. so we had enough to go take it to people and, and have publishers understand what the idea was. But then it was another two years of research and writing. And so at that point, I was really starting to dig into the studies chapter by chapter to try to, I already knew what the framework was going to be. But um, and I, I knew what the 10 aesthetics of joy were based on my research really early on, actually. But then it became a question of really starting to try to understand how is this being used in the world and, and what changes are being made by applying these ideas already? And how can we amplify those stories and help others see the value of this? Well, I mean, so that leads us to your creative process, which I'm assuming is very research-based because you have to compile all these studies and really create hypotheses and extrapolate reasons why certain things create joy. But you also have to understand the relationship of joy to happiness because they're not the same, but they're related. Right. They are related. And maybe I'll just tackle that quickly first. I mean, my belief and the science seems to support this is that little moments of joy, the more that we have them start to add up to happiness. And 
the reason is that joy often unlocks other, you know, positive things in our life. So for example, when we exhibit genuine joy, we actually become more physically attractive to other people. Um, scientists have studied this by taking computer generated pictures of people who are supposedly average looking and then people who are really good looking and they make the average looking people smiling and the above average looking people not smiling and they find that the average looking people are considered more attractive than the supposedly, you know, really good looking people. So feeling joy translates to exhibiting joy, which, you know, changes the way that we interact with the world. Um, it also, you know, research shows that we're more productive in a state of joy, which is counterintuitive. We're always taught that joy actually is a distraction from the things that bring us success, which is why we often put it off, right? Because we, yeah. you know, we focus on trying to be happy by, you know, getting that promotion, working really hard, doing all these things that we think are going to bring us happiness. When in fact, if we, allowed in more moments of joy, then, you know, we'd be more productive. Research also shows we make better decisions when we're in a state of joy. So there are a lot of things that joy unlocks. And I think the reason has to do with the way that positive emotions evolve. So we have negative emotions to narrow our focus to help us deal with immediate threats and challenges. So for example, if you hear a bump in the night, you have a, you know, a fear response and you're not thinking about anything else than you know, what created that sound. Um, so negative emotions are designed to focus us in on immediate challenges and threats. Whereas positive emotions, positive psychologists, this is their prevailing theory, evolved to help us broaden our focus so that we can think beyond the present moment and we can actually start to build resources for the future. So it's ideal for exploring, for playing, for, you know, being creative, for creating connections and relationships. All of those things are best done in a state of joy. And so when we experience these little moments of joy, it, it sort of tells our nervous system that we're safe and that we can afford the luxury of going out and doing some of these other things that can help us be successful in the future. Whoa. That's hardcore. I think that changes the paradigm for a lot of people. I hope it does. And that's really yeah. why I focus on this, because I think it seems, you know, when I first heard about it, I thought it seemed light and fluffy. But as I started to get into the science of it, I began to realize that we really take it for granted that we evolve positive emotions for a reason. They seem superfluous. It seems like it makes total sense why we evolve negative emotions. And positive emotions are just they seem like an evolutionary luxury, but they're not. They're, they're a sign that we are thriving and they also help us thrive. They help pull us toward the things that help us thrive. And so, yeah, because we naturally want to go in that direction and we shouldn't be second guessing that. Exactly. And I think we have a cultural predisposition and some of this is the, you know, puritanical work ethic. And um, there are a number of reasons why we sort of distrust things that are joyful. We distrust joy because we have a, a culture that's really was built on the idea that our work ethic is what gets us into joy in the next life. Um, and even if that religious belief isn't as universal anymore, and, you know, we, we live in a, an increasingly secular society, though not an entirely secular one by any stretch of the imagination, but that work ethic is embedded in the fabric of who we are in the U.S. as a culture. And I think it, it also is really common in a lot of parts of Europe as well. So we have the inheritance of that, which is that we often tend to postpone joy or distrust things that are joyful. Yes. So in your research, I mean, you talked about 10 things that cause joy in your book. What, what kinds of things have you discovered are joy eliciting? So... 
the way that I went about this actually goes back to, you know, the same research methods that I was using at IDEO, um, although I actually did this process before I even went to IDEO, but it was really just going out and talking to people. And so I started talking to people, asking them about the things and places that brought them joy. And what I noticed was that joy seemed to occur on multiple levels. So clearly a personal level, there are things that bring you joy that, you know, might not matter for me. So if, for example, if I see the the wallpaper pattern in my grandmother's kitchen somewhere, even though it's years later, I'll always find joy in that pattern. And I'll get so excited and you would see that pattern and think, eh, that's nice. And so there's joy that's tied to our life experiences. That's very personal. Um, mm-hmm. And then there's a cultural level um, that has to do with you know, where we grew up, um, it might have to do with what kinds of foods we find joy in, um, or what sports teams or what festivals, um, what, you know, kinds of costumes there are at those festivals. So those things are, again, specific to a culture. But then as I started talking to people, I found that there were certain things that cut across lines of age and gender and ethnicity. They weren't joyful for just a few people, they seemed to be universally joyful. And what I noticed among those things was that there were patterns. So one of the things that I noticed is that round things seem to be joyful everywhere. And they seem to be particularly common in childhood. So if you look at childhood, everything is round. You have bubbles, balloons, and balls, and Ferris wheels, and merry-go-rounds, and um, birthday cakes. Birthday cake, <laughs> right? I mean, the list goes on and on of things that are that are joyful in childhood. Um, and even children actually themselves are round. They're like rounder versions <laughs> of us um, because they have a higher percentage to body fat. It's one of the things that makes them so cute. But so round things, um, bright color was another thing, bright color and bright light, really. When we see brightness, that's usually a sign of joy. And, and you can see that in festivals all over the world. Another thing was abundance, a sense of abundance or multiplicity, which you can find in confetti and polka dots in um, a really well-stocked produce aisle. You see it at, a, at an all-you-can-eat buffet. And a bookstore. That's why I feel so good in a bookstore. A hundred percent or an art supply store. Yeah. That's pure abundance for me. I walk <laughs> in there and I just can't even resist it. And you know, what's really funny about that is like, if you're at an antique fair, antique dealers um, really understand the principle of abundance intuitively really well. Um, so they'll often stock random objects, collections of them all together. And you'll see them and you'll be like, oh, I have to have one of these, like, I don't know, like old vintage arrows or whatever. And you get one and then you bring it home and you're like, why does it not feel the way it felt in yeah. the display? Well, it doesn't feel that way because when you have a dozen of something, that feels abundant. Whereas the thing itself, it's not a trick, but it's just a, it's a thing to be aware of that abundance itself can be a source of joy. You've done a lot of work talking about the inequities of design and also how designing for joy is directly correlative to our well-being. Can you talk about that? It's really interesting. I've talked about the connection between joy and well-being a little bit. And actually, I didn't really talk about the, the connection between physical well-being, joy and physical well-being, but um, little moments of joy actually you know, decrease our cardiovascular stress response. Um, so they help. We live in this world where our stress is constantly being activated, um, probably more than it would naturally be. And joy helps to sort of reset the cardiovascular system between those moments of stress. So that's why it's really important to take a break to celebrate after when you when you've been pushing really hard. When we are in an environment that has a lot of these again, what I call aesthetics of joy in them, when it's vibrant, when it has elements of nature in it, um, you know, when it's well lit. And, you know, there are these 
you know, round shapes, a sense of order, all these different elements, it sets our minds free to focus on the things that we want to focus on. And these different elements influence us in profoundly unconscious ways. So for example, I love this study done at the University of Chicago, where they had people come in and look at pictures of asymmetrical environments or symmetrical environments. And then they had them score themselves on a math test that they took. And what they found is that people who looked at pictures of asymmetrical environments cheated more often. And they cheated by a greater percentage on the tests than those who looked at symmetrical environments. So what something happens wow. when we are exposed to these different elements. Other studies show that people working in more colorful work environments are more alert, confident, friendly, and joyful than those working in drab spaces. And yet, what do most offices look like? They're usually gray, beige, and, and filled with cubicles. So when I look out at the world, I see a man-made environment where we have sort of designed these things out of it. Mm -hmm. And the places, you know, talking about equity, the places where we have designed them out the most are the places where people don't really have a choice about where they get to be. So, you know, places like housing projects, places like, you know, homeless shelters and prisons and uh, nursing homes and where, where people just sort of end up when they're old or they're ill or they're down on their luck. A lot of schools actually also have this problem. And I think that there's really an equation in our society where we believe that joy is something that has to be earned. And we do it to ourselves too, right? We feel like we have to deserve joy. We have to earn, we have to work to deserve joy. And because we make that equation, mm -hmm. I think we end up at this very unjust conclusion where we say that environments for people who are poor um, or who you know, have not earned this end up being designed without any of them. And so you end up with these sort of severe brick buildings or gray, build, gray interiors that actually can cause a lot of unconscious anxiety. And I think one of the most interesting studies on this is a study that showed, um, it was a study of housing projects in Chicago that were all the same building, just built in a row, but some had more greenery around them because of how it had been maintained than others. And what they found was that crime was significantly lower in the buildings that had greenery around them. Um, so these things are influencing people at a really unconscious level. And by making it a question of what people have to earn, that making these aesthetics as something that's a luxury, an extra, as opposed to an integral part of how this building supports people's well-being and their functioning, we do not only those people, but society as a whole a disservice. Man, this is really, really fascinating. You started talking about the aesthetics. Is that kind of what you mean? This color, symmetry, greenery, those kinds of things? Is that what you're talking about when you talk about the aesthetics of joy? Yes. So the way that I divide it is into 10 aesthetics of joy. And they generally include a couple of those things. So bright color and light is, I talk about that as the aesthetic of energy, because those elements do have an energizing effect on us. Another one is transcendence, for example. Um, transcendence is all about aesthetics of elevation and lightness. And so there are different elements that can contribute to that. So um, one is just physically moving your body up in space. Um, another, you know, climbing a tree or going up in a hot air balloon. But also you can get that by looking up. So, you know, the way that cathedrals are designed with big vaulted ceilings. So there are different ways that you can, 
you know, achieve each of these aesthetics. And yes, there's there's sort of a palette of 10 of them. So it's not that every space has to include all of them or that we have to paint the world in, you know, neon colors, Um, but more that there are different ways to think about how we create an environment that can help us thrive. Yeah. So thinking about it from the point of conception, not as an afterthought about like, well, what color are we going to make this? What kind of window treatments are we going to use now that this gray box has been built? You're advocating for designing the sensory experience into the whole program, it sounds like. It's not an extra. I mean, understanding that joy evolved for a reason and that that reason is connected to our thriving, then when we look at our spaces, I mean, to me, like if you look at a bird, you know that that bird is influenced by its habitat and you can understand if something changes in the habitat, like so many habitats are changing now because of climate change, for example, and we're seeing animals struggle because, you know, their habitat isn't exactly as they evolved for it to be. That makes sense. Mm -hmm. But then as humans, because we've we seem to be comfortable all over the world. And because we've managed to build our own environments, we seem to see ourselves as entirely separate from our environments. And we don't really think about the relationship between our senses and what's happening in our minds and our sort of deeper functioning. And so I think just as science is starting to close this mind body gap and starting to show that these things are really that the relationship between the two is much more fluid. I think as we understand that, then we start to understand that our senses really are the gateway to our emotions and to our mental functioning and, and our experience of the world. And when we don't feed our senses and when we sort of deprive them of sensations by, you know, inhabiting totally stripped bare environments or when we, you know, live in environments that have a lot of glare or a lot of noise and don't have anything, you know, stimulating in a good way. It's kind of like feeding our senses junk food. And it's hard to imagine how our brains can really thrive on that. And I think the research on the way that the brain processes information from the senses and its relationship to our health and well-being is really evolving. And there's a lot of research now taking place with animals that shows that being in enriched environments, environments rich in enjoyable sensations for animals, actually can forestall cognitive decline. So I think it's really important to think about, you know, what is the environment we're putting ourselves in? Because that is a foundation of our well-being. Yeah. Now I'm going to look at every building I go into completely differently from now on. Be like, what were they thinking? Did they want to inspire joy? Well, I had this really sharp (laughs) experience of exactly what you're talking about when I was on a cruise ship. I was the guest of a comedian on the cruise ship. So the comedy troupe had access to both the um, above the guest areas and the below the crew areas. And when you open that door and go down into the crew area, all of the like bright wild carpet and decorative sconces and, you know, it's sort of like floating Vegas All of that completely disappears, and it's just diamond plate stairs, gray walls. There is absolutely no energy or luxury afforded to the crew of a cruise ship. And I just thought, that doesn't make any sense. Wow. Yeah. It's like a modern Downton Abbey, right? Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Below deck. There's a class system as it relates to the way that we apply aesthetics. Oh, absolutely. 
That's interesting to deconstruct as well. It is. It is. And I think that, again, it's tied to this idea that aesthetics are a luxury and that it's just decoration. Hmm. And, uh, you know, I often come back to this scene in Dirty Dancing where it's Baby and her sister Lisa and their father and the, the guy who owns the the resort is asking Baby what she's going to do. Mm-hmm. And her father says, oh, baby's going to save the world. And then he turns to Lisa and he says, and what are you going to do? And baby says, well, Lisa's going to decorate it. And <laughs> it's such a put down, yeah. right? This idea that decorating is just the the window dressing. It's the, it's the extra on top. It's, it's not important. And I think what I'm trying to, to do, one of the deeper projects here is to actually say, no, our sensory experience of the world is really important. And, and whether you call it decorating or whatever you call it, and historically, it's been done mostly by women, another important thing to point out, that that is an important project for our collective well-being. Well, and I think what's really great is if you can combine the, the sensory experience with the inventor instinct that you have, that you felt since growing up, then you really get to design the sensory experience the whole way through from the outset and design new sensory experiences. And that's exactly what you're doing by educating people on the power of joy. So this is very exciting. This is really, I think, changing a lot of people's minds. I know I grew up with the idea that joy is a something you earn after you do a lot of hard work. And then now in today's society, we feel like we've never done enough hard work to earn the joy. So it always gets kicked down the road. Totally. It's endless. And if we wait, we'll, it will never get there. Yeah. Yeah. The joy needs to be the motivating factor, not the reward. Exactly. So let me ask you a personal question. For someone who you're a human being, like we all are, and you're someone who talks about joy all the time, how do you manage to talk about that in times when you're not feeling joyful yourself? It's a good question. I think it's really important. So I talk about joy a lot, but what I would say the goal is, is not to feel joy every single minute. Because I think that we only know our joy in proportion to our sorrow Hmm. and our ability to feel that. And so to me, the bigger question is, how do we have a rich emotional experience of the world and not numb ourselves out? I think what happens when often when we're confronted with difficult times or with with grief or things like that is we seek to numb that pain. And I think actually... So I think people often think that I'm joyful all the time. And that's, you know, actually being able to feel down and understand it and recognize that it is transient is a really important part of feeling joyful and really feeling truly joyful when you experience those moments of joy. And so I don't try to force my way through it. I think I try to you know, one of the good things about understanding the science of it is really understanding that those moments are transient and temporary and they will, they will pass. And I think that's freeing because it lets you feel it more. So when I am not feeling joyful, that's often when I talk about that side of it. I talk about the other side of it and how we think about 
reigniting joy when we're struggling to find it for a persistent period um, and how we can create things like anticipation in our lives for things that are, are coming up. Joy, I feel like anticipation is joy front loaded into the present. It's future joy front loaded into the present. And so, you know, that's a, a thing that we can do to sort of have a little moment of joy or other things that I've found that work, you know, if I'm going through a rough period are to take a moment to find something to laugh about with someone else, or even try cheering someone else up, especially if you're going through a tough time together, um, because that's a time-tested way to sort of bring yourself back to joy, or just, you know, gaining access to nature, which can be a kind of joy that I think sometimes can coexist with sorrow, because you can be in a moment of intense, even misery, and then see a bird or hear a bird song and just think, wow, it just for one second be transported. And then, and it just gives you a glimpse of the possibility of future joy. So I think that's what I focus on in the moments where joy isn't as readily available. I'm really glad to hear you say that because we do need to understand that joy exists in relationship to the opposite of joy and that both of those feelings are transient, so there's a lot of doorway access in between the two that we also need to get comfortable with so that we can flex that muscle of finding joy, especially when it seems so distant from us. Because when you're in the depths of it, that's when it feels like joy is completely absent and you have no access to it. But you've just explained exactly the pathway to reminding yourself that you do have access to it. And it doesn't mean you have to be birthday party happy while you're sad, but it does mean that the sadness will pass and the future joy is something you can look forward to. I think we definitely should not be birthday party happy all the time. Not only is that unrealistic, but I think research shows that when we fake joy, that can actually be harmful to us. Yeah, that makes sense. So it's not healthy to live in any one emotional state all the time. And one of the things I always do in workshops is really try to help people reconnect to what the feeling of joy feels like in their body, because I think we're very aware of what anxiety feels like in our body. And I feel like we're very aware of what anger feels like in our body. And yet we are often totally oblivious to what joy feels like in the body and reconnecting with that, I think can help us see just actually how many of these states we move through in a day and how in a given day, even if we're going through what feels like a bad time, there are these little spikes that happen all day long. It might just be like a chance kindness from a stranger that can cause this little spark of joy or a really, you know, I rode the elevator up the other day with a really fluffy, it was like the fluffiest dog I've ever seen. And like <laughs> brought me so much joy, you know, and I, even though it was three floors, it was only three floors, but it was, it was a great moment. But when you are able to recognize it more, then you can, you can savor those moments. You know that they're out there mm -hmm. and you know that you'll find them again. That just reminds me, I was eating lunch yesterday and there were two women outside the restaurant and they had, I think they each had three giant poodles that were not groomed. So they were like fluffy and fuzzy and there were so many of them at once. And it was just such a fun experience to just see them. <laughs> and I wish I had stopped and like pet all the dogs. You got, you got the abundance and the, yes, and the cute. That's what I was thinking of, the abundance. <laughs> like one poodle is cool, but like six or seven is like way better. <laughs> Super joyful. Totally. <laughs> so have you personally felt any sort of shift in your life, in your body, in your mentality since you began dedicating your life to helping people understand joy? 
For sure. I mean, I started trying my own research out on myself. Yeah. And that was, that's been really profound. And so, for example, you know, one of the first things I did was, you know, I went out and bought a pair of yellow rain boots and I bought a really bright umbrella because I knew that rainy days brought me down. And so I thought, okay, well, if I have something to look forward to, something that brings me joy, something that counters the grayness of this and brings energy into it, it will lift me up. I do the same thing with exercise because I'm not it's hard for me to get out of bed and go exercise. So I started replacing all my workout clothes with really bright ones. And now it's like, you know, I open my eyes and I see them folded on the chair and I'm like, okay, I can go do this. <laughs> Cause it's, you know, there's like something joyful about putting that on, you know, and then of course, lots of things in my home. I, I love getting old furniture from flea markets and painting it in bright colors um, because that's a thing that I know will always bring a pop of joy, especially if it's, you know, near the entrance or a place that, you know, is something I can see every time I come home, it sort of feels like a, a physical welcome, like my home feels much more like a collaborator in bringing out a good mood than it, it than just like a collection of stuff. Mm -hmm. And I really think that, you know, I always tell people, like, if you can approach your home, based on how you want to feel in it. And the same with your workspace. It can be a starting point for putting things in it that really help to elicit that feeling. Oh, I love it. So yeah, I've changed my home. And I do find that, again, I'm not joyful all the time. But I do know that even when I'm feeling down, I can usually open my eyes, look around and find something out in the world or in my home that will lift my spirits back up. I think that's good advice for anybody listening who just wants to start peppering their life with more joyful things. Yeah, and we should all be focusing on it more. Yeah, I don't think it's hard or costly. I mean, I'm really a big fan of, you know, working with what you have. And I mean, for example, I color coded my bookshelf. And that brings me a ton of joy. It's it's abundance, it's harmony. Um, it's It's a lot of the aesthetics, actually. And it just gives you this I know that's a big debate whether to color code your books out in the world, but I find that it's something, you know, it's very simple and it makes use of something I already have. And it brings a lot of color into the home where before it would just sort of blend together into like a bunch of stuff. Now it feels like I have a colorful art piece on one wall. Um, so I'm a big fan of starting with what you have and not feeling like you have to go out and acquire anything. For the future, you know, joy feels like it's going to spark optimism or maybe vice versa. But what's your most optimistic scenario here with your mission of trying to help people add more joy to their lives and understand that their surroundings can bring them more joy? My hope is that in however many years time, it becomes a thing that we take for granted, that we understand that our surroundings, that people understand that their surroundings influence their well-being. They feel a sense of agency mm -hmm. to be able to create that both for themselves and for other people. And that when we look at public spaces, that this is something that designers are considering from the beginning, um, that it's not something we layer in after, but that part of creating a design that is compassionate to the people in it involves creating it in such a way that will help the people in it really thrive from a sensory perspective. I think it can go be so powerful in terms of addressing our density and homeless crisis, in terms of all of the healing institutions and our general practices for hospitals and clinics and any sort of healthcare, but also workplace. Oh my God. 
for the workplace. Public institutions, huge. for sure. Oh, my God. It just feels yeah. so obvious now that you've explained it all. <laughs> yeah, I think it is. But I think many of us have come of age in a, in a world where the field of psychology is really inward looking. And it tells us that we're supposed to be able to be healthy and happy and thriving anywhere. And it's only now that the research is really starting to gain momentum that shows that our surroundings do have this really powerful influence on us. And so now I think it's just a question of that research, making it out there. I'm doing my best to get it out there um, and bridge that gap between the the world of science and then the world of the people who can apply it um, both through design and then just in their own lives. To me, it's not surprising that we've ended up in this place, but now that we look at it, yeah, it's true. When I look at places, I'm like, Oh God, this is awful. How could we have ended up here? Um, And how can we fix it as quickly as possible? It makes me wonder too, if like, if we are not even aware of how society as society we've evolved into these you know echo chambers and bubbles because we only feel safe and secure in our home or something that we have agency over and because the rest of the world is so threatening because it hasn't been designed to facilitate joy and well-being we hunker down and in safe enclaves as opposed to feeling really gregarious to reach out across the aisle across socioeconomic divides and across any sort of social chasm. I wonder like if you could actually be solving all of the world's deepest problems, Ingrid. <laughs> Maybe that's a little far. I don't know. Um, but I do think that there's probably a piece around creating spaces for people to have difficult conversations mm-hmm. and what kinds of spaces make us feel safe to do that and what kinds of Yes, that a condition support that kind of dialogue. Certainly, a lot of the spaces that we are able to meet with other people in do not have those conditions. So yeah, I'm, I'm sure there's a piece, an interesting exploration that could be done on that topic. There's also just the general sense that if the rest of the world felt less threatening and more inviting, I feel like we wouldn't have our defenses up. So maybe that would even facilitate conversations that right now seem difficult but wouldn't be so difficult if we weren't already just bracing ourselves all the time. Maybe. In the meantime, while you're out um, saving the world and spreading joy, could you just let our listeners know where they can find out more about you, where they can get your book, uh, find you on social media, and keep tabs on all of the joyful things you'll be doing in the future? Yes. So uh, my book, Joyful, the surprising power of ordinary things to create extraordinary happiness is available wherever books are sold, um, ebook, audio, and hardcover. My website, aestheticsofjoy.com, also has um, a number of free resources um, that you can use to try these things out in your life, um, lots of downloadable tools and things like that. Um, and then I'm on Instagram at aestheticsofjoy. Um, I'm pretty active there. So if you want to chat with me, find me there. Thank you so much. This has been really, really fascinating. And I think you've helped me figure out how to design my surroundings for more joy and also just savor those moments. I think that's a real positive takeaway from this whole talk. Awesome. Thank you guys so much for having me. Hey, everyone. Thank you for listening. To see images of Ingrid's work and read the show notes, click the link in the details of this episode on your podcast app or go to cleverpodcast.com, where you can also sign up for our newsletter. Subscribe to Clever on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. 
And we would love it if you could do us a favor and rate and review us. It totally helps. We also love chatting with you on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. So you can find us on all of those platforms at Clever Podcast. Clever is created, produced, and hosted by us, Amy Devers and Jamie Derringer, also known as 2VDE Media, with editing by Rich Struffolino and music by L1011. Clever is proudly distributed by Design Milk. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.